recording. Welcome to the Yang Gang Roundtable. It is 12, 13 p.m. Friday, September 11th, 2020. We have Carlos Car- Carlos Cardona here. Yeah. Right? Thank you. I was thrown off for a second because your actual Discord name is it has like a PR at the end or something. Yeah, that's for Puerto Rico, so. Ah, cool. I was thinking that. So are you Puerto Rican? I am. Born and raised in Puerto Rico. Nice. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, We're all universal basic income advocates, and uh, you are... Well, why don't you just let you introduce yourself, and then we'll we'll start talking. Sure. Um, So my full name is Carlos Enrique Cardona Lebron. I was born in Aguadilla, Puerto Rico, Um, was born and raised. I moved to the United States at the age of 12, Um, and most of my life experience is based on my struggle to immigrate from... Puerto Rico to mainland. Um, I am currently the chairman of the Laconian Democrats, um, a city in New Hampshire. I'm also the chairman of the New Hampshire Progressive Coalition and officially the only person in the country that has actually hosted all presidential candidates, including yours, uh, Andrew Yang, uh, which I would love to talk more about as we go progress with this conversation. I'm sure we will, yeah. Do you want so how how does that work the um the housing of all presidents do you want to elaborate on that a little bit yeah so um it all started when i became when i ran for chairman one of the promises i made to the city democrats was that i was going to um put the city on the map um that i was going to make sure that our city was part of the political play um in new hampshire that it is new hampshire and of course, as you'll hear in the news, the, the role that New Hampshire plays in politics, especially in presidential politics. So um, I decided based on my previous experience, I've been in politics for about 14 years in the state of New Hampshire. When I first got elected at the age of 18, I did forget to mention that I, I was the youngest elected official in 2007. And so I decided to use my name recognition and my knowledge in, on the ground to uh, get candidates to come here to the city. I do happen to have a large enough home that can ha- host candidates in the winter, which is uh, another huge plus for candidates because in the winter in New Hampshire, there's not many facilities outside of the big cities to host them. And, and that's part of the retail politics. So um, basically... I my first candidate was Andrew Yang. Um, I went to one of his events in Manchester. I I can tell you I knew nothing about him, just like the rest of the world didn't. Um, and my goal was to get to know him and start from there, and hopefully invite him to the city. And so when we got there, I was in an intimate roundtable, um, maybe ten, fifteen people, and he was giving out his book, and I have it here on my table, and. Um, we had an exchange of ideas and conversation and as soon as he heard my story of how I got to the United States and my struggles as a Latino LGBTQ and as a young person, as a homeless person that I was at the time, he was like, exactly what I'm preaching makes sense. Like we need to get together, you know, his UBI plan to, which hopefully would help end homelessness. Um, and he captivated my attention by with the UBI. It was a, a new idea to me. Um, I know it's not new to America because there's been many politicians that have spoken about it, but to me it was new. So we got talking and um, we exchanged cell phone numbers and pretty soon from there we became good friends. Um, I had offered to host eight events for him throughout the state and he was like, great, you're like exactly what we need. Um, and funny enough... Um, 
I mean, not good for the person. One of his staff from New York got really sick and couldn't accompany him throughout his events. So I wasn't pledged to anybody. So I said, I don't see why not. It's a good experience for me. I get to know you a little bit more. And who knows, you might be my candidate for president. And so we decided to hang out for the rest of the day. Um, and so I was part of his entourage to go throughout the state and be like the welcoming, the welcoming uh, introduction guest. And we got to know each other pretty well. And Carly, who was his staff at the time, and that was pre-Steve pre, uh, Marchand, Christina Snell, Sam Hayden, you know, all these great people that you guys have come to know. Uh, so basically, I, I don't want to take credit, but I feel like um, part of the reason why New Hampshire got to uh, know and understand Andrew Yank, um, I got to do a lot of introductions for him. And so him and I, we just got to know each other. And then... As I continue my political journey, I sometimes would go to him for advice on issues and, and things. And he would come to me um, with questions about Puerto Rico statehood, LGBTQ rights, homelessness. And so in many ways, I was an advisor to about six presidential candidates throughout the year um, that would consistently call me for advice on the grounds here in New Hampshire and on issues that I was very familiar with. And it must have felt very nice to have like that input, right? Oh, I <laughs> I felt I felt very privileged. Um, if you would have asked me 14 years ago and said, what are you going to be doing 14 years from now? Or you said to me, you're going to be advising presidential candidates. I, I'd say you're crazy. Um, not in a million. Actually, if you told me that same 14 years ago that I was going to win as the youngest elected official as a writing candidate. I would have said you're crazy. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the you, I did not. Even, I didn't know you won as a write in. That is that oh, is yeah. a mythic. That yeah. never happens. Um, wow. How, how? Wow. Wow. What? Gee, so, congrats. <laughs> in, a, in the most district in the state of New Hampshire, which is where I live. Um, so, so yeah. So, I, I think that's some of the things that caught the attention of Andrew Yang. Um, you know, he, he saw the value in me being part of the team. And I have to tell you, he tried so hard. <laughs> um to make sure that I understood UBI. He educated me so much. I felt like I literally got a, like a college education with him um, when it comes to UBI. And at first I was kind of like, it's a crazy idea. I don't know that America would buy into it. And especially since I live in the most conservative district, I didn't think that it was possible. Um, and then as I hung out more with him, I realized like he's onto something. He, um, he's touching a part of America that hasn't been touched before in politics. And so, um, and then I saw a different type of young crowd coming into politics that um, not necessarily I've seen before. Um, so I, I just, I loved it. I loved everything about it. And, and not only that, Andrew Yang, I've hung out with some pretty cool people, but he is one of the coolest people that I know uh, in politics. He's so fun. He's so down to earth. He's funny. Uh, it's the but funny he part. the same opinion about you because according to this article from in the Washington Post from August 1st of 2019 he was already um he had referred to you as the future president of the United States the sky's the limit for you <laughs> correct I, I joke around with I turned 35 in 2024 and that um I said to him don't run for president because you already endorsed me and so we joke around like that but no <laughs> Um, I have no intention of running for president. Um, I've told him that there are three people I'm watching. I believe in a democracy. I believe that once Joe Biden serves, 
if he becomes president, once he serves his term, we should hold another election. It should not be a washout. It should not be like, oh, he's the nominee, let's move on, or Kamala Harris is the presumptive. Um, I don't believe in that. I believe that we should hold another set of primaries and I'll be playing a big role. And that's why my election is so important. It's not just state rap and the issues that I represent. I would hold power within our own party too to decide the future of our primaries. I was going to ask, because that sounds fantastic, but how in the world would you get the Democratic establishment to agree with that? Well, um, it starts all individually, locally. In the, sta- New ha- the state of New Hampshire has a lot of power. Um, and if the state of New Hampshire broke away from the DNC and said, we're holding a primary whether you like it or not, um, New Hampshire has a power that for a little state, it's unbelievable. It doesn't happen anywhere else. And I'm, I know I don't need to preach to that because you guys know it. And some of you guys might even envy it. And I get it. But I, I intend to use every ability that I have to make sure New Hampshire stands up. And I've already proven to do that. I challenged the most powerful men in politics in the state of New Hampshire this past spring. And I lost by 24 votes to him. He has awesome. never been in our party. Um, the, the the ranking members have never broken off with him until now. Um, so we're doing something. And then I created the New Hampshire Progressive Coalition, which the intention is to rally progressives here, which we're about 50% of the party here in the state of New Hampshire. If you were watching the gubernatorial's race this past uh, Tuesday, progressives lost by 2,000 votes. Like That's unheard of in the state of New Hampshire. So um, we're just getting more powerful as we go. And I hate to use the word powerful, but I think it's important that we use it within the context of we need to grab power. We have been too kind for too long. And I always said this to Andrew Yang. I said, we can't be nice. Um, Nice doesn't win politics. Nice doesn't win policies. And I don't mean be mean. I, I, I believe in civility, and that's why I'm a Yang Gang endorsed candidate or humanity forward, I should say, um, because I believe in civility. But you have to stick to, the, to your values. You have to, you have to be tough. You have to, be, you have to bite back. Um, otherwise, you'll get eaten alive in politics here. So my intentions are to... Um, hopefully rally enough progressives and like-minded people in the state of New Hampshire to hold our democracy. Um, Our parties need to be held accountable as much as anything else. Um, Even though I'm a Democrat, I've always been a Democrat. I believe that we need to hold our own accountable just as much. So my joke with Andrew Yang, you know, saying that I I turned 35 in 2024, um, there are four people that I'm watching very closely that um, I believe are going to be key to making sure that we have a democratic system in 2024. Um, and it's not just Donald Trump that believes in fascism. So we need to understand that that, that that idea runs very deeply in a lot of places, especially with people with money in politics. So um, so we should not just be like, oh, well, we want to get rid of fascism in the Republican Party. Like in our own party, there are people that, that have a hierarchies already set up. So, um, so that's what I've been fighting my whole adult life. But um, you know, Andrew Yang, Senator Nina Turner, Alexandria Ocasio, um, and there's a few other, but, you know, those people I'm watching very closely because they're going to be key to passing these legislation that we believe in, UBI, you know, I believe very deeply on Medicare for all. Um, one of the biggest issues to me is ending homelessness. You know, it, it is crazy that the richest nation on earth has this many homeless people in our country like at oh, the age it's of- it's so grotesque not only do we have so many homeless people we have so many more empty houses that are just asking an obscene price yeah and that's the only problem with homelessness right now yeah i'm Here, not there with you so new hampshire had 
at the time when I moved here as a homeless teen, had the highest homeless teen rate in the country. There are only about a million people in the state, and we had the highest rates in the country. That is incredible. That's why I got involved in politics, and we closed the loophole, and the number went down to 46. I know that I have the experience necessary, and it's not being cocky. I'm confident that we can end homelessness in the state of New Hampshire, and I believe that we can be an example for the whole country. Um, UBI is part of that plan for me. Um, But we have buildings here in the state of New Hampshire. The industrial era ended, and we have so many buildings that are empty in this country that we can utilize. Instead, we're selling for millions of dollars, so we're sitting on them. Um, So, for example, here in our city, I'm part of the Homeless Task Force, and um, we just currently bought, well, we're in the process of buying two buildings uh, that used to be owned by a Catholic church. It used to be a Catholic school that basically the Catholic church is consolidating. And so they sold us the buildings for uh, you know good price. And one of the thoughts that we have on the table, sorry, um, it's basically turning it into uh, housing for people. Um, we also have another building right here in my city that it's like a block from my house, a beautiful neighborhood. It used to be the state school system for the state. And it's a giant building. Then it got turned into a prison. But the building is beautiful. If it got degutted from the inside, cleaned up, I believe we can turn that into another facility where we can have, you know, housing for people. We have what it takes to end it. Um, it's just power wants power. And so that's what I mean when we need to grab power back and whatever that may mean, you know, in whatever form. So not yeah. all run for office. I understand that. So um, but there are party positions. I mean, I know tons of places throughout the country that are looking for people to like run for a local chair, you know, and you have a vote. It might might be something small, but it has a ripple effect. Sorry, somebody. Had- no, yeah, it's OK. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. But I do have uh, like, have you looked at other models of people doing similar stuff? Because I know of um, it's either Vancouver, Washington or Portland, Oregon. They have like a facility that um, they uh, renovated for homeless people. Um, and there's a lot of programs up there. Uh and I know this because my grandpa, um, he, he like picks up food from these, uh, re- or not restaurants, but like grocery stores and they give away free food boxes, um, at the thrift store he helps out at. Um, but they also were, um, creating, uh, these homeless buildings, but also certain churches were networking together in order to, um, essentially, uh, like help rejuvenate, a, a family. Um, and they would just like different churches would host to them. Uh, I, I'm just curious what kind of models you've looked at. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Um, there are plenty of models locally and nationally or internationally. Um, one of the ones that I like to quote the most, France has an excellent model to ending homelessness. One of the things we think of homelessness, we always think of home. We don't think about food, which I'm glad you brought up. Um, when I think of homelessness, I think of uh, various issues. Um, so France has does not allow grocery stores to throw away food. Um, so I think we can, you know, wow, uh, we can literally do something like that in this country. Um, they also, I don't know if you guys knew this, but France does not allow anybody to sell water. So um, they have literally one of the best water filtration systems in the world. Um, I highly encourage you guys to look up um, on YouTube. There is a whole documentary about water in in France. 
And a mayor in Paris was talking about how selling bottled water in America is one of the biggest scams we ever have ran in the world. It's also causing a lot of drought. Like, we're drying up aquifers trying to do it. So, for example, in Maine, um, uh, the water Portland, Maine, uh, from Portland, Maine, um, they've been exploiting local aquifers. Um, so, so yeah, you're right, 100%. So that's one of the ish- key issues I want to address is food, how we, how we feed each other. Um, the other one is I'm completely fine with cities um, taking back buildings that are completely empty and um, renovating them. And there could be federal grants with them. And then the UBI would be the other the other venue. Um, the, there's another reason why people end up homeless. Domestic violence is one of the biggest causes for uh, homelessness. Um, actually, the reason I left home was because my mom was being abused by her ex-boyfriend at the time. And I had just come out gay and I just couldn't handle the situation anymore. Like, I just wanted to be like, I wanted a better life. And so I ended up, you know, coming to New Hampshire to live in a tent. But so ending domestic violence is another thing that we need to like address in order to end homelessness. Um, Cause a lot of women and men, it happens to them too. Um, they end up in really bad situations and they, one, they might refuse to leave that home because that's their home or two, they leave that home and then they end up homeless. And one of the biggest um, communities, I was in AmeriCorps for a while. And one of the biggest communities that I learned so much about how to end homelessness is that from here it's uh Haverhill Massachusetts which is where I came from to New Hampshire um they had a they have a shelter system that is really um I like it so they took over all these industrial buildings they turned it into apartments and so basically they would give it to that to a person that comes to the building and says I'm homeless so they would give them that apartment they would get them a caseworker Assign them something because a lot of the times people have been homeless for a very long time and we need to break that cycle. So how do we um, back up their feet? How do we get them to believe in themselves, to have confidence that they can do something, that they can be the artist they want to be, that they could be the engineer that they want to be or the teacher that they want to be? So um, so addressing education. Um, so they have like literally everything in one building. So do they have child care? And they even have, they do have childcare, and that's where I came into the picture. So I ran an after-school program, which actually dealt as a um, childcare system. So, um, so, and, and that is important too, because a lot of parents, you know, they want to get back on their feet, but they have kids, and they're like, okay, how do I juggle both? And I have two kids of my own, so I understand that. Um, but I, I love that system. It was great. It had structure for people. It had food. They didn't have to worry about food. A meal was cooked every night. They just had to worry about lunch and breakfast, but there was like a, a whole kitchen set up so people could go and make their own breakfast, their own lunch. Um, and it just gets them used to having a routine, a structure, how to get back to society, basically. And um, because the homeless community, it's a community within its own. It's a society within its own. Um, and that's something that we fail to understand. There are rules. There are culture, all kinds of things that happen once you become homeless um, that you start learning. And, um, and I'm not saying it's bad, but if we want people to integrate back to society, we want to get them back in, on their feet. Like we have to do better at facilitating. Um, the same thing with the drug crisis. You know, we lost more people in the city of Laconia than anywhere else in the country per capita um, when it comes to the drug crisis. I know at least 15 people that died my age 
from heroin um, overdose. That's really sad. I'm sorry that because that affects everybody around you too, not just yeah. the people who pass away. One of the people that I took under my wing, his name is Joey. Um, he passed away. He was actually a little bit younger than me. He was 25. I got him a job. I was bringing him to work, like uh, giving him food, like just getting him on his feet and, and trying to be a good role model and show him that young people can do great things. And it, it, we got to a point that it was too late. Um, but, you know, it's again, offering people a one-stop shop type of thing, um, not having to jump through all the hoops. So, so right now, if somebody wants to get out of homelessness, what we have set up in society is you have to go to the welfare office, get welfare. Then you have to go to another office to get health insurance. Then you're going to another office for housing. Um, and then you're on a waiting list. And if it is an emergency because you have kids and they might up you up a little bit, but you still have to wait. So you're still stuck in a bad situation. So if you came from domestic violence, you're going back to domestic violence. Like if you're in drugs, you're going back to drugs because like it's easier to live that lifestyle than it is to jump through all these hoops. So I, I would like to chime in a little bit. So I actually ended up in a woman's shelter back in December. Okay. So I got to see firsthand like a lot of, uh, I mean, I got poked to be tested for TB, you know, um, and the, the the way we do the shelters now um, are not very catering to a um, successful um, transition, you know, but even even so, like um, the caseworkers are, you know, working on a lot of things like I have uh, some friends that were there when I was there, but now they're in like um, hotels. Right. But the problem is like. There's no childcare, and one of my friends has uh, a kid that I'm pretty sure is on the spectrum, right? And uh, that was the thing, too. A lot of the kids in the shelter were traumatized, right? Their parents are yelling at them, screaming at them. Parents don't know what to do. They're too exhausted. And or, you know, maybe they're going to use their coping mechanism soon in order to handle their situation, right? Uh, But, like, there's no place to charge your cell phone and your cell phone, if it's free, it's going to die quickly anyway. Right. And it's really hard to use even for um, trying to find a job or anything. Right. But like, you know, quality matters, I think when you're in a situation like that, so you can get out of it quicker. But like what I thought or what I saw to like, these people need like lockers to put their stuff so they don't have to carry it around all the time. They couldn't, give you any medicine, right? But if you had a friend who had Benadryl, that can help. Because like what happened was there was a random storm in uh, San Diego where it was raining and all these women got drenched, right? But their clothes have been carrying pores of sorts, right? And everybody had an allergy attack. I just happened to recognize mine, right? Um, But like mold was growing and then everybody's complaining about smell. Like these are things they don't realize like, are a big deal, you know, um, yeah. and, and they're so small and so subtle and so, uh, overlooked. I think, um, it sounds like what you guys are doing is, uh, much more, uh, autonomous, you know, um, there's still help, but there's a lot more resources. Um, you know, but like the thing too, though, is they don't always get along, right? Uh, there's people stealing from each other cause like, that's the way they've been managing, right? Yeah. Um, One of the things that I want to take away, this is why I loved Andrew Yang. He talked a lot about humanity. He talked about a lot about how we treat each other. 
And it's not just how we treat each other in a conversation. I think he meant more than that. It's how we treat each other when we're at work, when we service people, when we think about them, not just as a customer, but as a human being, like a brother, a sister, you know, as we would call it in the movement. Um, So what I want to change in homelessness and how do we address homelessness is not how we Right now, the way you're describing it and the way we do homelessness is like a fast food process. You know, we get them in into a room. Everybody's in the room. Everybody's safe. Everybody's eating. Great. Good. We, 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 we did the bare minimum. The next day they're out. They go about their day and then they come back. That's kind of like triage, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much like that. So to me, that's not what I want. I want a long-term picture. I want it to be home. I want it to be family. So instead of packing everybody into a gym or to like a big giant space and beds everywhere, which is the typical shelter in America. Um, I want it to be an individual apartment where it's their apartment where there is, it's an individualized case because not all homelessness is the same. As you know, some people might come, there's uh, domestic violence in the LGBTQ community. There's hate crimes. Like I wouldn't address it the same way that you would address uh, a woman, a mom, or any any other issues. So um, I want to change that. And we can code that in the law. Like, And that's one thing. I don't know when we as Americans, we stop believing that we can decide what the future looks like and what society should look like. Um, for some reason, we started believing that oh, it needs to be more bland, more more broad, more, no, we we can specifically say what we want our society to look like. And that's the difference between us and some other great countries. Other great countries are not afraid to define what their society is going to look like. That's why we look up to them. Our best politicians, Andrew Yang, Bernie Sanders, and some of the other politicians, they're, they're quoting other countries, but it's because those countries are not afraid. And partially, they're not afraid because they're so small that they don't have a lot to lose. So they're like, what the hell, let's try this. And they've tried it and they're successful. You know, Portugal, they've, they have the lowest drug use in, in the world and they I legal th- single drug. I think, I think it's because like we have this bureaucracy that's so stuck in this old fashioned nonsense. We're literally living in the past. Like Andrew Yang said, we have a gerontocracy. Like, the people we have in, like, the White House and in D.C., they grew up on, like, what, Windows 95? I remember when I was, like, what, four years old, I was using Windows 95. And they're not even in, like, the Windows 95 mindset. They're all the way back in, like, you know, back in my day. And, you know, you know you're, know, you like Joe said, like, work is more than a paycheck and this and that. When all these jobs are getting automated, it's like, we, we got to start living in, in the now, not in the 50, 60 years past. It's ridiculous. Well, I think you hit on right on the nail. We in this country, all you have to do is visit Washington, D.C., which I've had the pleasure to work in Washington, D.C. Um, all you have to do is visit Washington, D.C. to understand what we idolize as a country. Um, and idolization is a problem. It's a huge problem. That's how Rome fell apart. Um, that's how Egypt fell apart. They idolized pharaohs. And so we need to learn from our history. We in this country idolize the 1800s and the 1700s. We we see it as some glorious golden age when it really it sucked. It was well. Okay, can can I also just point out the younger generation? Well, okay, you could look, and it's really hard to find a voter under 35. You know, <laughs> uh, it, but you go up to 40, you got a few more. 45, a few more, right? Okay, so why is there an entire generation or two that doesn't vote? 
Well, it's because we're stressed out. We're overworked. We never took the time to learn any of the politics. No one took the time to teach us the politics. Or, you know, there was so much stress and trauma-driven behavior that, like, it just was not important, right? And yeah. and so now the only ones working on anything are the ones that have been around doing it because they feel like experts. They know what they're doing. They they understand the game, you know. And, and so they're like, well, I guess if I know what I'm doing, I will be able to help keep the trajectory going the way it is because it doesn't need to evolve. But the thing is, when it comes to learning anything, you know, it takes active active work to learn new things, you know, and if we have 80 year olds running for president, uh, they might not even have taken the time to learn these new things, right? But I think there should be a test for anybody who's running for president or anything to go through our homeless, uh, like process, right? If they could, like, manage to go into the homeless shelter and successfully, you know, you can see the problems when you go undercover boss, right? And yeah. I think I think more more politicians in our society should be able to do the undercover boss, if you will, because then they would see the problem at the root source. But they're so disconnected sometimes. Right. Because, you know, I'm pretty sure Trump doesn't know what it's like for, you know, Chael or Faye here or, you know, like he doesn't get it. Right. He's never had to. And and the guy knows problem. Boone, luckily. So. Yeah. Despite us both being New Yorkers, I don't think Trump really gets me. I just never felt like he empathized but sorry go on (laughs) (laughs) this scared my life like even so the washington post which earlier on one of your colleagues was um quoting this is why i decided to allow this reporter to like report on literally everything about my life the good the bad like he dug into everything he spoke to every person that knew me in the city in puerto he called people in puerto rico that i didn't know were still alive um and i wanted him to got the full treatment huh (laughs) <laughs> well, I wanted people to hopefully be inspired by this nobody in Laconia to wake up. Like, we have so much, literally, just one of you guys standing up and running for office can completely change everything because that's how little involvement there is in our democracy. I come from Puerto Rico where 78% of Puerto Ricans vote in their elections. Do you imagine if that happened here? The Bidens, the, the, the Donald Trumps would not exist. They, they just wouldn't. Um, that said, I will give Puerto Rico some criticism. Puerto Rico does have some serious corruption that needs to be addressed. That's what I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if it's all about yeah, cards as they are. So, uh, And that's why sometimes I can be a controversial figure, because I did criticize presidential candidates as they came through New Hampshire and as they visited me. And they're like, that's kind of like crazy. You're hosting them and then you're criticizing them as they were they weren't great. And I was like, because I believe that it is our job well, to Well, isn't that the job interview process? It's yeah. it, that's ridiculous. It's like, oh, you're interviewing a job applicant and you see that they like, you know, broke down somebody else's business and you're criticizing them. Well, of course I am. It's like- if you go to a restaurant to eat or anywhere to eat. And you don't, you're not happy with the service. You might go and buy, write a bad review. And if you were happy, you might write a good review. Like that is life. Like that's, it's, it is yeah, okay. But why do they deserve special treatment? I don't understand. It's like you want the job. So you have to, to me, show it was, that you're capable. And also, I think uh, the point is that if you don't yeah, write so a review. I made some enemies as I went. Right. But supposing you don't, supposing you don't say anything about the things that you are critical of and you just host then you've missed your opportunity to have any influence over this process. 
Why why wouldn't you want to let people know, right? I, I agree. Um, sorry, I got blacked out for a second. My my phone will tell me how long I've been on social media occasionally. So if I'm more than two hours, it says, Carlos, you need to cut off. <laughs> and I cool. do that for management. I think it's important. You need to have a healthy life. Um, I, I like jogging and going outside too. But um, yeah, so I did that throughout. And you could, I, I encourage you guys all to read the, um, I was as blunt as they come. Um, I was because none of them pay my bills. None of them are doing anything to advance my life. So, like, I'm okay with giving criticism if it's deserved. Um, there were some candidates that came here that acted entitled, and uh, I don't believe in that. Carlos, I, 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 that's why I getting from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you just hit the nail on the head there, buddy. Um, we should not be treating politicians like celebrities, right? Right. It's like it's like everybody wants to get like a picture with them and jump up and down with them and get inspired by them. But what but does that say that they could do the job or not do the job? I mean, Barack Obama was treated like a Hollywood celebrity. Sure, he gave like big speeches and like razzle dazzled and like hope and change. But then when it came down to it, like on the policy level, then why would we get Trump? You know? Like, like, but honestly, and, and I, people who and, are uh, outspoken like you and uh, like uh, like Ariel and uh, Carlos and other people who are actually speaking up to the process, um, that's that's something that I think politicians should be really thankful for. I mean, on, if you want that honesty and yeah, so yeah. you understand how, what people are thinking, but, because if somebody doesn't like you, they're just not going to vote for you. But, but, but if they I'm, don't tell you, how will you ever earn that vote? Right. Yeah. But but I'm but I'm, I'm so tired of politicians being treated like celebrities at the presidential level. It's just vomit inducing because but, it's but like, Ariel, how many so, times have we fanboyed out on uh, Andrea? ourselves it's actually yeah, something yeah, we have but, to but fight that, against but it's it, like, within it's ourselves like we'll, we'll, we'll know that he, he's actually there to fix the problem well i mean i personally don't like fanboy too much it's like i i, I want i want these problems to get solved i i don't care anymore at, at first it's fun to kind of jump up and down at the rallies and like repeat his name 500 times but after that i'm like okay just become president and get these things solved like i'm done but, fanboying but most people only get like five minutes. They don't get like uh, yeah, any uh, I, amount of time know, like Carlos does. It's with like I, I want to see things get done. I want to see the change, not just. What I mean yeah. is, like, if you get that five minutes with uh, Andrew Yang or with somebody that yeah, you you know it, idolize, all of a sudden, nice, but then you can't like, even think. You know, in those yeah. five minutes, you can't even think of the criticism that you might have but, <laughs> wanted but to bring five, up. But after after five minutes, after like a day, it's kind of like okay, you're a human being again. You know. So this is my take on this. I am not against having human feelings. I am not against you having a human experience, which I know to some people, Marianne Williamson sounded crazy, but I really like the fact that she was trying to bring, why do we believe in, 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 in religion? Why do we believe in all these things as humanity? It's because it's our human experience. It's our culture. It's who we are. And I'm not against any of that. I, there was times that I was so excited to call Andrea Yang a friend and like i felt you know there was a cool thing um and bernie sanders and some other people i'm not against having being a fan of somebody i actually think musicians deserve less fanaticism than some people in politics that are actually trying to change things in the world and they get no credit at all whatsoever so i'm not against any of that i believe in culture i believe in building uh community uh building this is how we take power so i'm not a 
I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that. What I, what there is wrong with is building an imagery of somebody that is not real. So for example, Barack Obama, like I, I give him credit. He was the first black president of our country. He did, uh, for me, he was, he signed on to the, uh, marriage equality, uh, amicus bill, uh, amicus, uh, letter to the Supreme court, which it was powerful. I believe that it persuaded, uh, justice Roberts. Um, so I'm okay with giving people credit and celebrating them, but I'm not okay with building an image more than what it is. And so we in politics tend to do that sometimes. So for example, you know, with Barack Obama, we hail him as some liberal hero that he wasn't. Um, as a matter of fact, I did vote for Obama and I did work for Obama here on the ground, but I, yeah. I idolized him because he wasn't the liberal hero that I thought he was going to be. Um, you know, he praised Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail many times, and then he fell short when it was like standing up against war and the drone attack just because well, we didn't sabotage Sanders campaign. Pretty much. He was the guy who put that fateful phone call in, right? To well, that, yeah. You know, I'm- 2008 that's not even yeah. what he did this past time around yeah, yeah, yeah. um and i can't attest to that because i wasn't in those circles but according to media that's what happened um to be honest biden was at the, he was literally nowhere near my radar i did host him i was happy to i did um congratulate him as a vice president i thought he was an okay vice president um but he was in my top even 10 um that said i i'm not okay with like making idols of these people that don't deserve it. Like yeah. we tend to, yeah. where there is none. And so, you know, like right now, um, the party's busy trying to like make Biden into something that he's not. I rather you guys tell me like, Hey, this is who he is. This is what we're going to get from him. And that's fine. This is what we have. We'll move forward from here. But to idolize him and create something that he isn't, um, is just wrong, you know, and, 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 and the Republicans are using it. They, I just got a mailer yesterday from Republicans saying he's a socialist, all this stuff. And I was like, I wish he was like, <laughs> we're all saying that. How is that not affecting the, yeah, the RNC? Right? The response is in now. Like anyone plugged into politics has heard 16 or 17 real progressive responses to the attack on Biden, framing him as something we wish he was. It's comedy, right? So how how is it that the people that those ads are targeted at don't hear the response to the ads? I guess they just don't watch those social media platforms. You know, what seems ubiquitous to my to me in my world is just not because our experiences are so bizarrely personalized today. It's something we haven't caught up with culturally, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. So um so those are my experiences when it comes to that. But I'm completely okay with the Yang Gang celebrating. I have my hat. Um, this was given to me by Zach, um, the, the campaign manager. So I, I will always treasure that. Um, and I have his book and like, you know, I'm a fan to a degree. So I think we all just need to learn how to check each other. That said, there is power in that. There are not everybody's like us. And what I mean by there's a lot of people in society that are not awakened as to how to see politics. So we have to use the system in place that these corrupt politicians have been using for a long time, whether it's creating a fan base, whether it's creating the excitement and the concert-like atmosphere to attract these people to hopefully awaken them into politics and show them, like, this is how we need to do things for the better good of humanity. So, Carlos, to to, uh, change the topic uh, quite a bit, I'd like to find out more about your experience uh, coming to the United States as you're not an 
immigrant per se, but it's sort of uh, like you're an American citizen, sort of. But then what's different about being Puerto Rican and yeah. not fully? Yeah. So I've had um, so I'm part of immigration groups here in, in, in the Northeast, and we've always had this discussion. Obviously, as a Puerto Rican, I have privilege that many Latinos don't have, um, which is we're born in U.S. territory. That said, I consider myself an immigrant because we have to struggle similar, not the same. And I'm not trying to downplay other immigrant stories, but we we go through similar struggles. The fact that we have to learn English when we come to mainland, that is a huge psychological struggle for many. You know, it causes depression, suicide to some people, too. So um, the culture, the food, um, I remember my biggest struggles and you guys might laugh at this, but. The biggest struggle was going into a grocery store. And I remember being 12 years old and not having my favorite candy at the grocery aisle, the candy aisle. Like as a 12 year old, I mean, I know that like some 12 year olds care about games and other stuff. But to me, like I'm a candy guy. So I was like, I remember I had to get used to this new flavor, this new candy. And like, I'll never forget, forget that experience. Then going to school was even worse. So I was used to going to school in Puerto Rico and having a uniform and having Puerto Rican food, which is way different from American food. Um, and you, we were able to listen to our music and like, it was just a whole different experience. So then you go to school here, it's an enclosed building. Keep in mind, schools in Puerto Rico are an open concept. So really, you're technically outside. Um, they're buildings that are not enclosed. So you're not inside all the time. So to me, I was, I felt claustrophobic. I remember going to Black Rock Academy, which by the way, if you Google it, has been shut down because so many discrimination losses that happened with that public school in New York. Um, and it was an all black school. I was, there was a Latino wing in the school for seventh, eighth grade. And I remember like feeling so enclosed in the building, so I felt so behind. I felt like I felt alien. I felt really much like I didn't belong at first. And then you had to make friends. And then all Latinos would just kind of like group together because there was like 20 of us and then the rest of the school was black. And for us, that was a cultural shock because the way New York was handling it or that school was handling it, it's like we were different. And so I grew up in Puerto Rico where if you were black, white, like, we were all Puerto Rican. Like, there was no different. What was different about us was the music we liked, the colors we liked, the food we liked, the candy we liked. But it was it was cultural things. It was not racial things. And so that's when my eyes got open to that experience that I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I saw the injustices happening to our Black brothers and sisters. But at the same time, I was like, I don't know that I can deal with this much longer. I would come, come home crying. And I'm like, Mom, I don't even want to go to the bathroom. I don't feel comfortable. And everything so was so divisive. Um, the food was terrible. I remember going and having breakfast, and the breakfast was cereal, cornflakes, or these French toast. There were sticks that looked like fish fries. They tasted like fish fries. So imagine having that for breakfast when you're used to having Puerto Rican breakfast, which I don't even go into details. <laughs> um, I was like... And why not? <laughs> so I was like, I felt... I felt like an immigrant. I felt, and then I remember we were less than in my community. We had to go to like a separate church um, that had service whenever. It wasn't consistent. Um, that's where we go to the food pantry. And I was, I grew up poor in Puerto Rico. I grew up in a shanty village, which dirt floors. But I tell you what, compared to the experience I had in Buffalo, New York, 
I was rich in Puerto Rico. <laughs> like, I might not have not had the best bed, but my family owned the house. Like, you didn't, they didn't have to pay taxes for that property. Like, this is something that America does backwards, too. Um, we value freedom, I guess, to a degree, but um, the food was always consistently delicious. And, like, I felt like here we had to, like, when we first started here, we had to, like, have stale bread. Like, just... It was poverty on a whole different level, and it was humiliating. Um, and and think about this: this is a twelve-year-old living that experience, um, and I'll never forget that memory. So, when my mom finally decided to leave Buffalo, New York, for Massachusetts, it was a huge relief because I was like, maybe this Massachusetts place that I hear about will be much better. And at the time, I was starting to think about like who I was, which being gay. So I was in the closet, and I had heard that Massachusetts was like that frontier for gay people to come out and like be themselves. And Massachusetts was like Boston and San Francisco have always been the gay capital of America. I always felt uh, when it comes to a safe haven. And so I was just looking so much forward to getting out of there and like going to Massachusetts. When we went to Massachusetts, life was better, but that's because we had already established ourselves after four years. Um, but that was the struggle. So that's something that immigrants face here in America. So when we talk about immigration, it's not just about a, le- a, a documented status. Um, it's about a life change. It's about like the struggle of being different, being an, an alien to this country. And so um, it, it's just the holidays were different. Um, did you, you have know. siblings? Yeah. Did, so did I, you have siblings? I have, yeah, I have two younger brothers. Um, people say my middle brother looks older than me. Um, and I take pride in that. So I, I keep myself looking young, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lotion, huh? <laughs> uh, he works painting cars. He had it the toughest coming here. He like went into severe depression. He tried to commit suicide a couple of times. We had to face that as a family and the lack of resources in the community and the discrimination. Like if you didn't spoke English, your appointment, you were going to get it for counseling or whatever you needed whenever they decided that it was okay for them. Like, so, you know, that's the stuff that we grew up with. And then my little brother, Jose. So we call him the, the white guy out of all the relatives because if you looked at him, it, there's, there's not many Puerto Rican features. And he grew up here. Um, we When we moved to the United States, he was a baby. So, and when I say United States, I mean mainland. Um so he speaks very little Spanish and he's okay with cornflakes for breakfast. He's okay with uh, pizza for lunch, uh, hamburger for dinner. Um, and I'm not putting our culture, American culture down, but I, I love our food. <laughs> so I criticize him all the time for that. Um, but yeah, so those are my brothers. And I do have a half brother also named Carlos that lives in Puerto Rico. Um, that's through my father. And he still Is lives. Is your father's name also Carlos? Yeah, so I am the 13th Carlos um, in a uh, generational. So my name is passed down family to family. You can track my full name, Carlos Enrique Cardona, all the way to Spain, Cardona, Spain. So That's crazy. Yeah. uh, yeah. Uh, I wanted to find out a little bit more. Pizza and hamburgers. Sorry, go on, yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm from New York. Yeah, that's, That's what I eat, dressed exactly like what you said. (laughs) <laughs> Go on. As so, that look it's like- not wrong to call you an immigrant even though you're an american at this point because that's what it feels like it is an immigrant 
experience. And but um, I was wondering also about the like the legal aspects of having been born in Puerto Rico instead of here on the mainland. Like you wouldn't be able to vote for president if you were residing in pre- Puerto Rico, but here you are in uh, in New Hampshire and you can vote now for all of the candidates, including U.S. president. So I'm glad you bring that up because I love yeah. educating. There's a great yeah. organization called powerforpuertorico.com. Um, you can search that up and they have tons of information. They can tell you how many Puerto Ricans live in your state. And in some cases, they can even tell you how many live in your city. Um, so it's good for politics to find out what your like votes look like. So in New Hampshire, for example, we have 46,000 Hispanics and we have 15,000 Puerto Ricans, which is the population of my city. So like, that's pretty cool for me to know out of a million residents in the state. So um, so those are some fun facts. But Puerto Rico is a Commonwealth colony. I call it a colony, even though the United States has never used the word to describe Puerto Rico, because it's exactly what it is. So it's a the United States serves as a protectorate. Basically, it's like having a child. You, you take care of it, and they have no rights. Yeah, you get to tell them exactly, well, I mean, kids do have rights, but you get my point here. Like, you, you as a parent, you're telling them how to live their life, what to do, Um Puerto Rico does have some sort of autonomy that is really weird that they, for some reason, I don't know why Puerto Ricans still try to like protect it, like fight for it. Because for me, it's like, we should either be fighting for statehood or for independence. Like we should be able to like dictate our own future, but they do have some sort of autonomy where they can create their own constitution. But the history of Puerto Rico real quick in the early 1900s during the Spanish American war, the United States just simply invaded about over 300 Puerto Ricans died. Uh, 300 Puerto Ricans died, innocent Puerto Ricans, and then about 3,000 serving soldiers. Um, uh, There was a a massacre called the Ponce Massacre, which about 50 innocent children died um, during a raid that the United States did. So it's important to know this history because it's not much different than the current history we have with some of the invasions we do around the world. And this describes my stance as a politician. But um, Puerto Rico does not have the right to vote um, they just, they're automatic citizens, but as a colony does not have a right to vote for president for representation. So, uh, therefore Puerto Ricans in Maine, in their, in the Island don't get to vote, but because there is no definition of class of citizens in the United States, once you come to mainland, you automatically become a regular citizen. So you're able to vote. What happens, this is the, this, I know, and it's confusing and crazy, but, and if you have questions, just ask me, but. This is the other confusing. So 2016, Puerto Rican birth certificates were completely in Spanish. And so a law was passed, which Republicans injected a little bit of hate into that bill for Puerto Ricans. They said, we're going to change their birth certificate and it's going to be in English. And we're allowed Spanish translation in small letters in the, at the bottom, like what it's saying in Spanish. So about 50% of the population doesn't understand or speak English. So you can imagine having an English birth certificate. You're, you just know that's your name and the date that you were born, but you don't know what it actually says on your birth certificate besides your name and the numbers. So, um, so as of 2016, our birth certificates were changed. So a lot of us in mainland had to go back to the island to renew our birth certificates to get the new one because our old ones were not valid anymore. The government completely invalidated them. So you're talking about 8 million Puerto Ricans flying to the island in one year not including on top of the tours that go there, that are millions and millions, flooding the island just to renew their birth certificates because otherwise we would have no way to get an ID in the United States because one of the ways you can get an ID or 
with a they couldn't just it. mail it to you. <laughs> you have to actually physically go there. It's crazy. No, nope. it's like and when then, I had my son. My son was born in Taiwan, and you have to physically be in Taiwan at the consulate to get his birth certificate if you want one that says he's uh, born, you know, outside of the country as a as a U.S. citizen. So it's very well, strange. Yeah, that's what happened to us. We had to fly there, and I remember my mom, me, my brothers. I mean, it was a whole family affair flying to Puerto Rico. Like, and, and being at the airport, it was so chaotic because, like, I mean, you can picture the scenario. So um, the other fun fact. So about 6 million Puerto Ricans lived in the island prior to Hurricane Maria. Only 3 million currently live in the island. So about oh, my goodness. Wow. The island after Hurricane Maria. Um, about 3,900 Puerto Ricans lost their lives during Hurricane Maria. Um, Donald Trump says only 49 died. I can tell you that it's definitely not 49. Um, when I went to Hurricane Maria, when I went to Puerto Rico after, right after the math of Hurricane Maria, it looked like the apocalypse had happened. There's no other way to describe it. Every single palm tree tree that you can imagine was down on the floor, like a nuclear bomb had gone off. And would you say that disproportionately wealthy people fled that the, the people who actually left? Um, as refugees, would they be more wealthy because they had a chance to? The first wave of Puerto Ricans that left, I like to think that it was the more affluent. Um, but then after, let's say after the, you know, the two, two millions that left afterwards, it was two waves that happened. It was called the Puerto Rican exodus. Um, the first million, I would say probably most of them were wealthy Puerto Ricans, which there's not a lot of in the island. Puerto Rico, if it was a state, would be the poorest state in the nation, poorer than Mississippi. So that gives you an idea of the poverty, what it looks like in Puerto Rico. Um, So when all those Puerto Ricans left, then the second wave was mostly people who had relatives here. So I had six relatives move move up here with me that I had begged them to leave the island. And actually, so there's two parts to the Puerto Rico story for me with Hurricane Maria. My dad spent nine months in the ICU with a bacteria that we can easily cure here in mainland that you can contract from bad water. Um, when rats piss on water or something, my dad must've drank from a river and rats must've been near there. And anyway, so he contracted that bacteria. Um, so he was unconscious for months. They didn't have antibiotic. They didn't have this, the, the most normal things that we have here, like penicillin, you know, like simple things. Um, so I had begged literally my whole entire family. I said, I don't care. We have to sleep on the floor here, like whatever it takes. I mean, you're already worst case scenario there. I had an committed suicide because he had no food for two weeks and he was tired of watching his wife, my aunt and his daughter starving, literally starving. And they were eating leaves. I mean, and bark from trees. Like that's like, that's stuff that you hear about in movies from like, I don't know, wars in Uganda or something like that. Like very stereotypical, right? But that's that's really what the reality on the island was like. Um, and this is America. Showers. I mean, I have to yeah, say no, Puerto Rico is America. There are lots of parts of America that are just as dire and just as much poverty, you know, like Flint, yeah. Michigan yeah. still has no water. You know, yeah, that's not surprising yeah. at all. That's why yeah. I'm in my rural community. So I'll bring this fun, fun, uh, fun event that is happening. So October 15th, Andrew Yang are going to have a national event. So you guys are the first ones to know about this. We'll be releasing more details this week. And we're going to be addressing rural America, which is where I'm from here. Um, my area, even though it's a city, it's very rural. 
Um, and we have very real needs, just like any rural community in America. And that's why Donald Trump won. The reality is Democrats have failed to address rural communities. They've failed to what I call average Joe's. They just forgot about them and ignore them. And that's why I made it my job to like highlight rural communities during the presidential p- process. Um, I hosted so, like six of your family is, members is, in the same home that, that you've been hosting all these uh, presidential candidates. Is oh, yeah. that why you think you won the uh, uh, your area because you were a Democrat that actually cared about in a conservative area? You kind of won as a Democrat, or it was a other Democrats. Um, I'm not, you know. Funny enough, like people on social media knows me as the chairman of the Laconia Democratic Party, but like around here, I don't even talk about that. I, I don't talk about being a Democrat. I talk about, and this is why Andrew Yang and I get along so well. We don't talk about. We just talk about being people. Like I had a neighbor yesterday while I was on the phone with a couple of different politicians that stopped me and they were like, hi, like, and I was like, oh, hey. And so I let go of the phone call. I was like, oh, I have a neighbor stopping by. It's more important to talk to them. So I was talking to them. They're like, we just bought the house down the street. I heard uh, people were saying we should talk to you because you like politics. We like politics, too. They don't know. Half of the people don't know my my, I guess, whatever status I have on social media, you know, like. They just know me as their neighbor down the street that is putting Laconia on the map. That's all they know. Um, and the issues that I like fight for, like they don't, they don't have some sort of fandom, some sort of idolization of me or, you know, it's just, they know me as Carlos that just knows how to network with people and find solutions for our community. If, if you know, if somebody's, I don't know. Um, I, so we had, you've won, you've won your, your primary. Are you, are you, um, are you running unopposed or do you have an opponent for the I general? do have opponents for the generals. So um, all very credible opponents. Um, they're all Trump-supported opponents. Um, Trump has targeted my district. Um, so, yeah, so this is going to be a tough race. Um, Donald so, Trump. So the race is still on, Ariel. We've got to continue uh, supporting uh, Mr. Cardona here. By 40% in 2016. WMUR, our local news, is reporting that Donald Trump will win this district by 6%. That's not the Democratic Party doing that work. I believe that that's the work I've done on the ground to change what it's going to look like for Donald Trump. Because the job that I've been trying to do is to show people that we don't need to belong to a party to accomplish things. We just have to put humanity first. And I hate to keep saying that because that's very much what Andrew Yang says, but it's the truth. We need to just put our neighbors first. If there's a fire down the street, we need to worry about where they're going to sleep. If they have kids, that they like, they can continue life. How do we help them continue life? How do they? How do we make sure that they continue to be successful and not end up homeless? So that's my whole goal, and that's what I've been doing. So that's the difference. So there's been a couple of articles that have come out on me that have highlighted me as a bipartisan support uh, candidate that has been rallying unity in the city. Um, because it's us against the world, the way I'm painting it. Um, and it very much is, you know, we have politicians that want to keep us in poverty. They, when the stock market shut down, you saw politicians cashing their checks. They knew that the stock market was going to crash. They didn't tell you, they didn't tell me that. And we got screwed, but they got, they made money out of that. In 2008, the same thing, they made money out of that. They didn't lose any. So, you know, we just have to turn the tables around and, um, get power back to us. So that's what I've been doing. I did win in 2007, this district. Um, Again, I ran as a riding candidate. And I think that was a huge plus for me because Democrats like here are frowned upon. Um, So I think that was a huge plus. And then when I came out as a Democrat, people were like, okay, well, 
he's different. Um, but as the years have gone by and I have supported Obama in public, I believe that locally, maybe with Republicans, it has infuriated them that I have become a little bit partisan. And the reason I became partisan is because I believe that the Republican Party, when it comes to gay rights, when it comes to women's rights, to children, to families, to working families, unions, they're completely wrong. And then exactly what they did to Puerto Rico, that they have failed to recognize that Puerto Rico even exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, did that to any nation, to any minority in the world, we would have a war in our hands. Like, And so we've treated Puerto Rico like it's a rag doll that we just don't care about. We just throw in the corner and we use it whenever we want. So um, I have a specific question about Puerto Rican uh, like le- legal status and stuff, okay? Now, yeah. if a Puerto Rican here in the United States were to marry uh, somebody who is from outside of the country, uh, so maybe they marry someone who's Mexican or Canadian or something else, and uh, are they able to com- you know, help that person become American citizens also? Yes. Yep. So we're about a half an hour away from Dominican Republic, um, which you will see a lot of Dominican Republican Puerto Rican marriages, um, Dominican and Puerto Rican marriages. And that's not uncommon where I grew up in the Island is the West coast. So we're the closest to Dominican Republic. And it was not uncommon to see Dominicans that had moved to the Island cause they married and they become us citizens. Um, yes, it happens all the time. Um, I, I know people from all kinds of countries that have married Puerto Ricans. They fall in love and life, you know, continues here in America. So, Um, But yes, your answer is, yeah. So we have those rights. It's just, so in the early 1900s, not that American Congress has changed much, racism was still pretty much relevant. So what the United States did, instead of creating a revolt in Puerto Rico, a million people revolting is not a good look for America after the Spanish-American War. So what they did is they give them crumbs. They said, we will, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give you guys citizenship. You want our jobs. Great. You become citizen. You can come and go as you please from the island. You can get an American passport. You can pretty much call yourself an American, but you're an American light. We won't give you power. We're just going to give you dependency. And that's exactly what happened. Puerto Rico became dependent on the U.S. economy. So basically, we, we exploited Puerto Rico for economic reasons, for their you know, people, for, right. their, for the military strategy. Dianola Gay, before it went to Hiroshima... It landed in Puerto Rico to fuel. So, like, you know, one of the most strategic military bases in the world happens to be in Puerto Rico. In my hometown of Aguadilla, the uh, Ramey base, which is now an airport um, slash military base. Um, so, you know, so that's kind of what the United States did. They said, here's some crumbs. We're going to let you come to the island. We're going to let you pretend to be an American, but we're not going to let you vote because we know that if you vote, that's why Puerto Rico, um, Congress is afraid of Puerto Rico becoming a state. But there does the- seem to be some special like designation that somehow lets lets them know that if you are like if I go as an American citizen to Puerto Rico and I reside there, can I still vote for president or is it my residency there prevents me? It prevents you from being there, from voting in in in. in so I suddenly become a Puerto Rican if I go to Puerto Rico and live there, like so- immediately, and I, now my my voting rights are curtailed. So the, the wealthy, this is how they get away with it, because I know quite a few. I actually interviewed with somebody who is an American, who lived in, has residency in Michigan, but lives in the island. So if you have residency in any state, then, you know, the law in that state defines that you're a resident of that state, then you're a resident of that state. So you're able to vote in that state. So you're not allowed to vote in the local 
Puerto Rico elections, but you can vote in absentee in Michigan or, you know, go and show up and vote and then come back. And if I move to Guam, do I become Guamanian immediately and then I can Guam? Is <laughs> Guam is the same for Virgin Islands. It's the same for the Marian Trenches. We own more than just these colonies. Like There's like seven of them. Um, but America has failed to teach their students that there's such thing as these colonies. So, But yeah, no, it's the same thing um, you for president. That said, you do get in primary. But, but here, here's, I think that's the same thing with like the, the United States and what it does to people who are struggling with money. It's like, we just won't give you like this freedom dividend or this UBI to like do what you want. But if you jump through like all of our hoops, you're, you're, you're kind of like, um, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking, participating in the economy light, kind of like an American light. I think yeah. like, like all these means tested programs are like, participating in the economy light because because we'll we'll give you snap and like all this stuff but like not just straight that other people do um no so one of the things i'm grabbing my charger so sorry if i'm moving around i realize my phone for some reason is at three percent but um one of the things that i often talk in, in politics which i have learned from senator bernie sanders is that slavery didn't get abolished it just got reinvented it got changed um so slavery is still very much alive you know we just change what instead of being just black people well we're gonna use black people hispanics asians and poor people we're gonna just all keep them in economic slavery so it's no different um and in some places it's still driven by race you know redlining districts are still very much alive in america i remember uh, Samelis Lopez, who's running for Congress in Brooklyn, um, she was talking about redlining districts and what it does to communities. So, you know, slavery is still very much alive. And I read, um, I read in uh, an article from your local paper in Laconia that you had had a sort of a social media sort of uh, fight with with uh, one of your opponents in, in yeah. the last race. That you were, uh, you know, had made up <laughs> afterwards. But the the thing that started with started it was that you had tweeted that you you might quit politics because you were exhausted dealing with racism in this state and the lack of understanding from people that say they are allies. Being Latino has been a bigger challenge than being gay here in New Hampshire. Do you still yeah. find that to be true? Absolutely. Um, being gay has its struggles, and I'm not trying to say it's easy. Um, but in some in, in so many ways, I call it the gay privilege. Um, just like being white, there's a privilege to it. I feel like with being gay nowadays, and I'm not saying everywhere. I know I'm going to get wrath for this, but some people find it. Oh, you're gay. Cool. You know, th that's been some of the reactions I get. Like, oh, I want to learn more about you. Like a curiosity. Like now, yeah, I there's tell a legitimate them, counterculture cred in you know in some circles. That that's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. So. Um, I think movies are starting to fantasize gay people and like culture, like like we're some sort of like special human being, and and we're not more special than you guys if you're heterosexual, we're or or Hispanic or Asian or whatever background you come from. I I don't believe in making anything more special because it's not. We're just like anybody else. We have feelings. We you know the whole nine yards. Obviously, I don't need to go into detail. Um. But being Hispanic, there's you speak Spanish around here, 
anywhere and you'll have heads turning around. And it, it wasn't the case when I first moved here. I want to clarify that. I do believe that Donald Trump has heightened, kind of like the same thing what happened after 9-11, considering today's 9-11. Um, you know, like when 9-11 happened, a lot of people were fearful of Muslims and and they felt like if they saw somebody with a hijabi, uh, they just like automatically there was a fear. And I think Donald Trump has done the same thing. You speak Spanish and automatically we're all Mexican. We're all, as he described the uh, uh, Latinos or Mexicans, uh, rapists, um, criminals. And so there's that automatic fear that some people have. Like, are you here to steal from me? Are you here to, like, take my job? Are you here to, like, jump me? Are you here to, like, commit some sort of crime? And you can see that in people's faces. Um, And I have battled nonstop for the past four years, and I was very successful. There was a very ignorant, uh, hateful politician. His name is Peter, that tried to run for mayor here in the city. And he was my opponent in 2018, and I got to witness firsthand, you know, just how terrible of a leader he is. And um, I was so fearful because I got one day uh, a mailer that said, if you want immigrants to steal your job, steal your wife, uh, steal, it had a bunch of ridiculous stuff. And I woke up afraid for my family. I was like, oh, my God, like some white crazy person with a gun coming to my house, knowing the how much recognition I have as a Latino, as a successful Latino in politics. Is this person going to come here and make an example? So, you know, that's a real fear in my community. So when I declared to run, I was hesitant because one, fear was being used. And two, Donald Trump's hatred would play my district. And I mean, nobody wants to run for politics to lose. Like, that's not your intention. So, and I didn't know if I could win. I And then I found out I was had a primary op- opponent and that fear became even more real because I was like, I'm being primaried. Democrats don't have primaries around here like normally. Like I'm being primaried, one, because of my name recognition and two, because I'm Hispanic. There's no other question about it. The, the guy was anti-gay. He was a white supremacist. Like th- there was no reason to have this guy in the Democratic Party as, as an opponent for me in the primary. That wasn't like even a fair primary. Like I just felt like... The only there was no discussion of issues throughout the summer. It's just race and gender identity, uh, sexual orientation. I got called. Uh, I'm not man enough because uh, I sleep with a man. Those were word for words. I had to block every single one of my opponents on social media just so I can concentrate because they were starting to get to me like I was emotionally becoming. And then they would call me. Uh, I forget what he used, the word he used, but he called me mentally unstable. I think it was. Um, and then of course there was a huge backlash against him on social media and the community that basically said, this is not our values. Um, we don't call people mentally unstable, even if they have some mental health issue, like, um, you know, we get like our current voters, maybe, maybe a candidate for this. (laughs) So there's no question. I mean, so that, that person, we've become friends since then because my approach is one, I had just talked to Andrew Yang that, that like week. And he kind of reinstilled the fire in me saying, you know, like when they go low, you, you have to find a way to like conquer it with love and like stability. And like, this is how you're going to win. You got to show them that you're a good human being that, yeah, I'm human like you guys. I get angry. I get upset. I get sad. I cry. Yeah, I, I actually suffered depression. So like, it's okay to be a human, but it is okay completely to show that you're better than them in, in the public hemisphere. And when he said that to me, It kind of like reignited my passion to prove people wrong that like you can be homeless and be something 
that you can come from Puerto Rico from nothing and like just basically win and, and, and do great things. Um, you could have a mother that has domestic violence and get her out of that situation. She now lives with me and she's very happy. She loves being a grandmother. Um, so like, you know, you can do all these things. There's no reason why you can't. And of course it has to be a community effort. And I appreciate Andrew for like his friendship and just being there and saying, you know, you got this. Um, so I just kind of, just when I wanted to quit, people came around me and they're like, no, you got this. Like you, you have to believe in yourself. I know that it's tough. I know that guy's a bad guy. So what I did was I, funny enough, his boss and I'll, you guys might find the story interesting. His boss works in New York for a radio station. And she goes, this is not okay. I'm, I'm lesbian and I'm Puerto Rican. And I'm going to call him. And I have two options. I can fire him or I can um, give him a way out of this. And I said, I'm all about second chances. Like, I don't want to cancel anybody. I believe that every human deserves redemption. So including Donald Trump. And so I know, controversial. Um, so I said to her, sure, let's work on this. So she approached him and she said, you have two options. You can either talk to Carlos in person, get to know him and to do a public apology, or you will lose your job for basically you're a public figure. And this is how you're behaving. It's completely, that was a homophobic slander. That was an anti-immigrant slander and that's not okay. And so he decided to call me. I gave her my number to call me and we met for coffee at a local coffee shop that some presidential candidates would venture to. And we had a long talk. He got to know me. I felt his apology was sincere. I don't think it was because he was cornered because some Donald Trump supporters, they're like, it's my way or no way. Um, and they're okay with losing a job for the stupidity they do sometimes. Um, and he took, you know, so since then, we've actually met regularly once a week, socially distanced with a mask and all that. And we've gone for walks and talk. And I've learned about his family. He's learned about me. Funny enough, the day before my primary, he said, I hope you win tomorrow because I've had so much fun getting to know you. And like, you've made me a better human being. And I said, I hope for your sake I win because I'm going to be the only one that can defeat you. And he laughed. And then I said, hey, while you're at it, would you like to hold signs for me tomorrow? And he said, why not? So he came. He was at a poll holding my sign. And I, I think that's what American, that's what I, the America that I that I have come to know is. Like, you know, we lift each other up, even if we're opponents at in some intersection of life. Um, but that said, he's still a Donald Trump supporter. He's still supporting the things that Donald Trump does. So what I've said to him is, I will always be civil, but I have no problem at all highlighting where you and I disagree, where you and I are different human beings. And I do believe that if you support Donald Trump, which, by the way, my partner voted for Donald Trump in 2016, he's a registered Republican. So that's an interesting story. But um, so to me, I said to him, so I have no problem standing my own and saying, this is where you or I like can't meet halfway. Um, there are things that it's okay for us as human beings to not compromise. Um, and he understands that. And so I've done that in letters this to the editor. A, this is a very heartwarming story. Is he going to be your opponent? Uh, have they, uh, did he get to win his primary? Yeah. He didn't have any primary. Um, oh, I see. Um, so he's one, but he's not the, the opponent that I'm most worried about. Um, I think I have shown that I'm a better candidate than him. Um, I have shown that I can lead our city and unite our city. I still think he has a lot to grow um, as a human being and as a leader. I'm more worried about some of his other opponents 
well, some of his other colleagues that are running against me and in the same election as him. Um, and that's like a guy named Greg, who is like, he's 2.0 Donald Trump for sure. Um, and then there's a woman named Don Johnson. She's like, you know, the women for Trump, like that, that, that clan that is showing up on social media everywhere. Like she fits the, the profile, um, policy wise, attitude wise. Um, I believe in having some sort of class when you're running and like, when you're having dialogue with people, um, it has to be a two-way road because I'm not right on everything. Just because I believe certain things about homelessness or whatever doesn't mean that I'm right. You know, as a society, we get the majority gets to decide what it looks like. So I believe in having that discussion and being a consensus builder. We need to, to for the greater good of humanity and for peace. She doesn't believe that. She believes that it's whatever her way is. Um, everybody else is wrong. Everybody else is trashy. Everybody is less than human being than her. And so, you know, that's the type of candidate that I'm running against. So like, I literally have to maneuver all of this policies and then like my attitude, my professionalism, my community building. Um, We just hired some phenomenal staff. Um, We have Sam Hayden, who's from the Yang gang. Phenomenal. I, I don't know anybody else that worked harder than him in the state of New Hampshire for Andrew Yang. Like I really don't. When I, when he told me on a call, I want to work for you. I was like, I didn't hesitate. I was like, come on on. And of course, Andrew was very happy about that. Um, and then I just picked up another guy named David Math. He was a political strategist for Tulsi Gabbard. Um, this guy. His last name is actually Math. Yes, his last name is actually. Well, his full name is, it's actually David Math Henfrich. Um, he's got to run for office with that name, I think. <laughs> I've tried to encourage him, but he's he likes to be behind the scene. I actually try to encourage him to run for chairman of his local party. And he's like, maybe my girlfriend will do it. I was like, no, you're the mastermind. Like, I want you to run. But um, his girlfriend is great, by the way. But um, yeah, I'm sure he's, he's very ma- good at the role that he's chosen for himself, too. <laughs> oh, he, he I I. These people, I've been very fortunate. Then I have Sebastian Fuentes. So he's my political director, David. And then uh, Sebastian Fuentes is my campaign manager. He is an immigrant uh, rights activist. He is from Peru originally. He's done the mule, uh, I call it the mule migration path, you know, the drug cartels take. Like, he's lived it. He knows exactly what discrimination looks like, what are the biggest problems with our country, our, our injustice that is happening with communities. Um, And then I have one more position left, um, which I, later on today, I'll be interviewing a few more people. Um, And I specifically had asked my campaign that I want a powerful woman to take that position. Um, And I want to highlight with my team, the diversity of our city. So Sam identifies as queer. Um, We have Sebastian, who is immigrant um, and Latino. And then we have David Math, who is... Uh, he's white, but he comes from the Native American uh, culture and uh, he practiced Na- Native American rituals. Um, and he's very much like Tulsi 2.0, which I admire in many ways for her foreign policy. Lack, she just wants less involvement um, of invading other countries. And um, I think that's smart and that's good. And that's how we're going to fund some of these programs that we want to fund is to eliminate slash these budgets, these giant budgets that we have with the military complex. Um, so you had mentioned, uh, your mom is enjoying being a grandma right now. Do you, yes. do you have any children of your own? 
Yeah, I do. So I have baby Jack, who is uh, eight months old today. He was born January 11th of this year. And he is the most adorable baby. I've posted a few pictures on Twitter of him. Most like recently, adopted? I think yesterday. Huh? Or adopted kids? Um, no, so Jack is actually biological, and then I have Sophia, who is five years old. Her first day of kindergarten was Wednesday, and she's in school right now. She was adopted, but I've had oh, both. Um, she was she was with me since newborn. I got to see her born, and um, oh. I've had her. So you had a wife? I don't have a wife. I have a partner. A we're not married. It's it's a guy. I'm gay. Um, oh, yeah. So the biological child we had as a surrogacy. Oh, okay. Huh. So, oh, right. so, you, so she's um, basically at home helping you with the, the with the kids, so you can do all of this running for office. Now, my mom, while you're <clears throat> the running for office, now uh, I read somewhere in all these different articles that uh, you are running for a position that only pays like a hundred dollars a year or a hundred dollars a month. <laughs> it's not yeah. very much to live off of your, uh, this particular position. So how are you going to be able to do this position and still be financially okay for yourself? Well, New Hampshire has one of the largest state houses in the country has 400 members, one of the oldest still running in the country. Um, and there are 46 people under the age of 40 who like you and me don't have, and I'm assuming at this point, but based on our conversation, I could probably safely say that none of us have very ultra wealthy parents that can, or spouses that can uh, help us live. Um, So, (laughs) um, so, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, That said, I don't have that privilege in 2010 with the privilege I do have is in 2010, my partner and I opened a business. We currently have about 200 employees the Concord, so the capital is in Concord, New Hampshire. My office happens to be in Concord, New Hampshire. So uh, even though being a state rep is considered a part-time job, and it does pay only $100 a year, and you're serving for two years, so that's $200, plus they pay you tolls and gas mileage, which obviously is not a lot to live. Um, but I'll be able to work from the Concord office and balance both. You know, there's a sacrifice to be made, Um I understand I'm not going to be living the most luxurious life. Um, every Most state representatives in the House do that. That said, the average age at the state house, and this is why it's so important to elect somebody like me, you guys tapped us on this earlier, is the oldest state house in the country. And when I say oldest, not just by years running, by age. The average age at the state house is 65. I would bring that, that, that age to probably 60. Like, that's how old it is. So, um, do you think if they paid a living wage for the people who were serving, you know, that they would be able to get younger people to very interesting, yeah. volunteer to Absolutely. actually run? So, one of the bills that I'm yeah. proposing to do is so Nebraska has a very interesting way because they don't have a large economy and so does New Hampshire doesn't either. So how do you pay these politicians, so many of them, a living wage to serve its people without being a retired state house? Um, so one of the things is you shrink the state house from 400 to maybe 50. That's solution number one. Also, there is no need for a Senate. And this is very controversial, but I've been talking to a lot of people on the ground about this idea that I have. Mm-hmm which actually is not my idea. Tony LeBranch who's a young guy running for office here in New Hampshire, who's very progressive. He's LGBTQ too. We talk a lot. And he 
shared this idea with me. He understands I have a larger platform. So I was like, oh, yeah, I should talk about this more often and see how people feel. But the idea of eliminating the Senate, the Senate makes sense federally. It does not make sense statewide. Um, the Senate was created and intended to protect the little states. There's no protection for a state within a state. Like you don't need to protect. If you're protecting a county, I get it. That's fine. But that's not even the, the, the role of the Senate. It's to protect who? The best, the special interest. So there's no need for a, a Senate really, or vice versa. We can keep the Senate, which is much smaller. It's only 15 senators. Um, and then eliminate the state house. The only problem I have with that is Having a Senate is very Roman. It's not very democratic. So to me, um, eliminating the Senate would make more sense and just keeping the state house because that's more democratic. Um, so, you know, it's an idea that is not going to be easy to, to pass, but I want to start having that conversation. I'm not set 100% on what the solution is, but I know that something has to happen. Something has to change. Either we have to pay the bill and pay people living wage to serve, or we need to downsize and like the money that basically we were spending with other positions, just uh, fill it in. But for now, I'm going to play the system, which is like, you know, not getting paid a lot. And I'll work basically having two jobs, um, which I'm not foreign to. I've worked two jobs most of my life. Like I'm a hard worker. Um, I used to work at McDonald's and at a hospital as a Kitchen aid. That was my first job. And I used to walk to my tent every single day, had no car in the freezing cold. Like, that's what I do. Um, so sometimes I think that's probably one of the most American things is that to really mm-hmm. make it, you have to work two jobs. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy never, when, the, when the president's, and, uh, you know, and, bring and out it's, there. It's unfortunate. I mean, people should never have to. I want you to be right. able to put 100% of yourself into your real job, which is, you know, uh, government. And like, like, you, like the important thing you do. I don't want any of your energy being sapped by whatever you have to do to make money well, for some what, for some owner. Hold on, Ariel. Hold on. You like I, I have you ever considered like uh, uh, crowdsourcing, like or sorry, crowdfunding? Like start a Patreon for your government work. Be like, hi, I'm not paid enough for this good work I'm doing to help fix America. Perhaps I could have some patrons. You know, like that might be something for you. Have you ever considered that? I haven't considered it, but the first thing that comes to mind, because I'm such a democratic uh, democracy enforcer, I don't know what you call it, but I, I, I'm a big believer in democracy and the opportunity has given me to lift my voice and lift the voices of homeless, that I can see where there might be like some sort of conflict of interest, maybe. So um, yeah. I would explore that with some legal advice first before I would ever do something like that. Um, that said... Um, I'm serving. I was in America for three years. I know how to live. Like if you've ever seen an AmeriCorps person, they live on poverty. Like they don't get paid anything. So I know what it's like and I'm prepared to serve people. Our soldiers are sacrificing their lives every single day. Like for me to sacrifice two years living on, you know, barely any wages. Um, That said, I do have a privilege that my partner owns the company and he'll probably be making most of the money that year. Um, those two years. So I'm comfortable with that. If that's what's going to take to move humanity forward, um, I'm, I'm completely fine. There's this idea that some reason we don't have to sacrifice something to gain something. I, I don't believe in that. I believe that we have to sacrifice something in order to You're gain already something. sacrificing so much. I don't, I, like, I, I don't think it's like good for you to be sacrificing. You're going to do a better job if it's your only job, right? You're uh, representing I, I me. I want you at 100%. I mean, you know, I'm not in your state, but to some degree, the, the, the decisions you make affect me. 
affect every American a little more than than, than an average American, right? You know, you're yeah. you're, you're in government. So I want you at 100%, man. I, do, I don't agree okay. with this. I want people paying you, and I want your only job being the job that is very important that you do. Well, it makes me very happy to hear that from you. That said, I want to touch on something you said, and this is something a conversation Andrew Yang and I had, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but what happens with my race will dictate. New Hampshire underground and politics has so much ripple effect in the whole country. In Washington, D.C., I call New Hampshire the heart of Washington, D.C. Like, so whatever happens with my race politically, I'm the last progressive standing like with big name recognition in, in, in the state. Like, So whatever happens with my race will dictate whether Andrew Yang will have a strong showing in the future if he runs for president again. Will dictate whether Bernie Sanders, like you know somebody like Bernie Sanders, runs again or runs for office, like has a chance, like it it will completely, it will dictate whether we can do it at a state level, UBI, Medicare for all, Green New Deal version, like all these things. So like, I believe that literally what I'm doing is, I mean, the pressure is on and I feel it. I feel it every single day from the party, from, I have zero help. The party has already told me like, you've already pissed off enough of us. So like, so to me, what I want more than anything is we need to focus on winning and then we'll focus on the rest, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. We will, we figure it out. We're, we're going to like, we're hardcore. We're going to well, figure it out and I'll be fine. <laughs> here's Bye. the irony in all of this. Like you, you have to work like two jobs if you get that. But Donald Trump, like just yesterday said he just spent all this time just watching TV after show, after show, it's like, what? we get angry for the people collecting unemployment. And we say when they're, when they're like job hunting, that's a requirement. And here's our president watching like 80 hours of Fox news a day and not doing much. else. Yeah, no, I, and I mean, that's essentially what corporate America is doing. They're sitting at home, dressing whether they lost 1% or gained 1% that day or per hour. And and that's it. And and we're literally breaking our backs. I I sounds pretty tell, lazy to me. I tell people. I tell people we need to start thinking like Bugs Life, the movie. And you can tell I have kids because I'm bringing this up. But um, I watch it with my kids uh, intentionally to instill in them that if enough little ants get together, the grasshopper, they need us. They they won't survive. So that's what, how I see my movement, how I see this. I'm very grateful for all the support, all the people have come out of the nowhere and like believe that this race has a ripple effect on the rest of the country. And I know for a fact that I'm not going anywhere. So what happens in 2024 will very much be dictated based on my race because I will be able to stand up in years to come if I win this race. I'll have some say and I'll be able to say, hey, I'm not okay with this. Like, this is not what people elected us to do. This is not democratic. This is not okay. And I want to play that equalizer. I want to be able to be that person that, just like I gave Andrew Yang a fair chance to, like, I welcome him into my home, into my city, into other communities. I want to be that person. I do believe that if it wasn't for people like me, I'm not the only one. There's other people like me in the state that actually welcomed Andrew Yang and gave him a spot, and we used our platform and our weight in the party to give him a leeway into the political system, he wouldn't be the person that he is today. And I always say, like, I knew him before he was cool. Um, So to me, um, you know, we need to protect those people. We need to, uh, that's why I formed the New Hampshire Progressive Coalition, is specifically to protect 
these progressives that speak up that literally the establishment eats alive every single time because they have no group, no, no, no coalition, no association to anybody to protect them, to, to make sure that there's a backlash if those people get attacked. That's why I believe no matter if we disagree on some issues with AOC, like we need to protect her because otherwise the establishment is going to eat her alive. Ilan Omar, all these people, not just leaders like nationally, you know, Andrew Yang, who He's done more for me than anybody else I know in international politics or national politics. Like that's just oh. amazing. So Carlos, stuff I like know that. you. I know you've mentioned that you are uh, you you know a proponent of UBI. I didn't see it as part of your um, platform and in, in your list of issues for New Hampshire specifically. Is that because it doesn't really apply at the state level? That you're really more for it at a national level? Honestly, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I was a one man team like until primary day when like I got all this help, all this financial help to be able to hire people and and do things. My website was like literally created in one day by a volunteer. So um, it will be added UBI. I do believe that we can do it statewide. That, that I, I, I'm a huge proponent that you can do whatever you set your mind to do. Um, and New Hampshire is a perfect place to do it. One, because it's cheaper to implement these policies. And two, because it's such a small state, it's a perfect way to kind of like international politics to interwind it. And honestly, if I can successfully get enough people on board, which, you know, we have 600 members in the uh, New Hampshire Progressive Coalition that I've built. Um, We have about 40 of them running for office. Um, If enough of us stand up and say, let's try something, it doesn't need to be 1,200. It could be something small and then grow from there. I know California was trying to do 500. Um, I think we can actually accomplish it. I, I am not, and I'm not being cautiously optimistic. I actually, I'm confident that we can do it. We spent enough money on trash on things that are not worth it. Um, you know, we subsidize fracking in the state of New Hampshire. We subsidize oil. Like we don't need that. We don't need to subsidize either of them. They, they, they're economically sound. I, I get it back when we first started it. But it doesn't make sense to continue to do well, that. Well, um, a, a subsidy is basically just UBI for the rich. Oh, of course, a hundred percent. Yeah, you know, it's welfare <laughs> it's, for the rich, the rich, and right. that's why when people are like, "Oh, you know, so and so's a communist for wanting to give money to people," or this and that, I was like, "Well, we give away our money all the time. You and I are giving our taxpayers money to corporations. They got tons of money this past spring, and we got a thousand two hundred. Like yeah, America's incredibly socialist. Yeah, we're we're socialist yeah. in the wrong direction." Yeah, it's so right, when my, when... Right. Also, uh, Carlos, I was interested yeah. that you're saying AOC hasn't been eaten by the establishment yet, because I really think she has. She really well, doesn't support basic income anymore, thinking that it would somehow harm the very limited welfare system we have. So I'm, I'm, I'm literally saying eaten alive, meaning she will completely disappear as a progressive. She hasn't. Oh, and that I see. means we still have a window to show politicians get eaten alive when they don't have enough support because they want to continue to do the work they do for good or bad. Um, And so they merge into whatever other group has more support, whoever has more power, whoever has a louder voice because they want that support. Politicians thrive, whether they like you like it or not, they thrive when democracy behind them. So I believe that AOC is still a progressive. I believe that we do have a chance to rescue whatever issues we've lost with her. Um, I do see what you're seeing. You know, she's agreed with Nancy Pelosi on a few things that I find disgusting. Um, that said, she's still very much anti-war. She's still for America for all, Green New Deal. 
So I think they've just been nibbling at her. And the establishment is very good at that. I mean, I was in that position not long ago. Like, I supported Hillary Clinton in 2016. Like, I didn't support Bernie Sanders. Like, I was very much a moderate. And so I don't want to paint myself as this guy that has always been enlightened and has been, like, just phenomenal. I, I, I was very much that person because I wanted to accomplish things. I wanted the support. I wanted to have that network to be able to accomplish things. There's nothing worse than being a politician that does nothing. And I know quite a few of them here and they feel pretty, pretty bad about themselves that they're just a rubber stamp. They just feel useless. And I didn't want to be that politician. I wanted to be a, a leader that can get consensus and build something. And then I realized that I was like, well, it's okay to build things based on consensus, but there are times when you need to stand up when the rest of the country is wrong and, or the majority is wrong. And you have to say, that's not okay. Like, and that's when I started becoming more brave. And then I found people like you guys that started supporting me on social media. And I felt not afraid to stand up. And so courage is built. It's not born. Um, and I know some people disagree with me on that, but I, I truly believe courage is built. And so just like it is, takes courage to get out of a situation, it, it's the same thing politically. So we need to start earlier. I don't know who mentioned this, but I think it was in one of your group chats. Um, you guys said, you know, this is what we need to do as a coalition, like uh, to build support. We need to be there for these politicians and do phone banking and do all this stuff. We have to do that. Otherwise, we're, we're going to keep getting stuck with terrible politicians. And we need to learn how when sometimes we just have to take the hit. Um, and I've been able to do that. So that's why I built that coalition here in New Hampshire, like, because I want to protect these good people that are standing up. And the, the establishment is just has a machine set up. I mean, yeah. It's just defeating, you know, and as a human being, they learn how to defeat you psychologically. It's not always physically. They will make you feel like a piece of crap. And I've been in that position many times. I don't know how many times I've told myself I'm done with politics. And if I had done that, I don't know what the ripple effect would have been, but I can only like contemplate that maybe I would have never helped Andrew Yang. Maybe I wouldn't be where I am today. Like well, you just never know. Of Carlo, like creativity and understanding like their psychological attacks and understanding the way that they function so we can counter for it it's it's like it's like every intelligent like military strategist doesn't just blindly go into battle it's like first you survey the area you like you know you know have satellite maps of like okay, this is where this is what they have and this is what they're using and this is how they're using it. So you can prepare for that and like use your smarts. Because I find like sometimes with progressives, it's like maybe they get like a little too emotional and a little too rash. And, and they it, it's like they just want to like blurt out like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. But it's like, hang on a second. Let's have like cooler heads over here and let's be really strategic and intelligent about this and beat them at their own game. You know, I need you on my team because um, I'm that emotional progressive where I just like. Like ah, and that's why. I no, have I don't know. Like you seem pretty smart. You put a coalition together. I'd love to you have more of the coalition on before I before you have to go. We got about five minutes left. But before you have to go, I would love to to have anyone else from the coalition you put together on. This has been a very fascinating yeah. conversation. Yeah. Um, so please extend that invitation to, to any of those those people. Yeah, I think you guys would very much enjoy. Um, there's quite a few people I'm thinking right off the bat. So Robin Vogue, um, he's my graphics and data person, technology person, who you guys are going to start loving because he's going to start using some cool graphics. 
we're into comics, so you can already nice. see what's in the, what's in the future. Um, he is a UBI proponent. Um, he had run for state rep, but he lost his primary by 30 votes. Keep in mind. Um, he's, uh, he's part of the board for the New Hampshire Progressive Coalition. He would be somebody that you guys would enjoy. And he's younger than me, actually. So he, he's just awesome. Then this Cherry Frost, we call her the mother of all progressives in New Hampshire. That woman is on fire. Like she's Cherry a history Frost. teacher. Yeah, Cherry Cherry Frost. She is a history and slash English professor. Um, she's a state representative currently. Um, she is the most progressive, like progressive by like a long yard um, in the state house. Um, he's, she has challenged the status quo with me like since I started in politics. She's phenomenal. So I would say those two people alone, you guys. I, you might you might love them more than me, actually. So I think I think you guys will like find their conversations very intriguing. Uh, when you were talking, Ariel, I think it was Ariel that brought it up. The conversation about being intelligent, basically, mm-hmm. strategist. Right. These people are like, if I was going to yeah. war and I was like a general, I need them on my team. And so, <laughs> like, these are these are yeah. And it's not it's not about fighting harder; it's about fighting smarter. And so, but but I think this is this is the beauty of like the crossover appeal that we have with conservatives and the people who are Trump, because, because I was there because the Democrats really weren't offering anything. And I just thought that like Trump would do better for our economy. And as a millennial who like struggled with finding like a good quality job, I was like, maybe he knows how to fix this. But then when Yanks, like, like I, I even, and then, and then I said, but wait a minute, we give all this free money to all the people who are not struggling to all the people who screw things up. And we're saying that we can't give it to ourselves. And then it just clicked. And then like, like, so if you're ever having, if, 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 if you're ever having trouble with like a conservative who says that socialism stuff, but then say, but wait a minute, what about the socialism that we already have that was working against us for the I'll tell you how I connect with conservatives and libertarians here, which are most of my voters. We give Israel trillions of dollars to live a very comfortable life. It, people in Israel, they go on vacation, they own homes, they, like, they live a very good lifestyle. I'm not saying there's no poverty there, but thanks to our money, they live a very comfortable economy. Why would we do that for them and not for ourselves? Why can't we do that? Isn't part of, we're supposed to be a village. We're supposed to take care of our people. Like, why can't we provide that for our own first? Like, I would take care of my family first and then take care of others. Like, that's how we were taught to, you know, you, you take care of your own and then you take care of the stranger, you know, like, so why can't we do that? Like, and, but I'm going to tell you. That very much into their America first uh, mentality, I think. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. I, I'm completely okay with that. That's, we're paying taxes. You and I are working really hard. And this is where I mean, maybe me and Democrats differentiate. And I'm okay with that. Like, I want to be different. I don't want to be like a rubber stamp. But. This is what changed me because I want to finish it with UBI. There's, I went on vacation right after I hosted Andrew and he gave me the book and he wrote me a really cool quote. Um, who, who would have known that actually his quote was going to be like, Hero Carlos, congratulations on all you do for the community and for the world. I have learned so much about you and we're building a future to be proud of together. Like at the time, I didn't realize we were going to be building this much together or that he would be supporting me for a race and like creating so much change together. But I took this book on vacation. I remember being on a cruise. And of course, in a cruise, you have a lot of downtime. 
my kids, my kid, my daughter was playing in daycare and the cruise and I was like, just lounging. And I had this book and I was like, you know what? I might as well learn a little bit more about him. And I remember getting stuck with this uh, section in his book, which is page 66, which funny enough, my favorite number is six because I was born August 6th. But um, it says it's worth considering whether humans are not actually best suited for many forms of work. Consider also the reverse. Are most forms of work ideal for humans? That is, if we're not good for work, is work good for us? So I immediately started thinking of a mule or donkey and how we would never use a, a mule or donkey or a horse for certain type of labor in the farm. And I was like, that's when it clicked on my head that I was like, oh, my God, we humans have been trying to fit in. We're, we're like, if we think of ourselves as a tool, like we're trying to fit in as a tool in places that don't fit, like it doesn't make sense. And that's when I realized, like, we've been looking at our society, at our world, the whole wrong way. Right. Yes. Um, we have not been thinking yes. about what's best for us. Like when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, what do you, what do you eat? Well, I have coffee in the morning and they tell you, well, coffee's not, let's say that they say coffee's not good for you based on your health. You stop drinking coffee. You stop doing it. Like, oh, you can't lift more than 20 pounds. Like that's not good for you anymore. Like, you just stop doing it. And so society, our bodies, our lives, our life expectancy has been telling us, like, this is not good for you. These fumes, these whatever you're working, like, it's not good for you. This is what you need to do, like work less hours or have a less stressful life because that leads to less cancer, like whatever it may be. But we're not listening. We're not doing any of that. And we just keep pushing ourselves. And so we keep having the same effect, which is insane. Um, so that quote had the most effect on me. And I actually, after reading the book, and obviously I've had this book now for two and a half years, I I basically marked this page because I want to read it as much as often as possible to remind myself, like, every policy that I direct needs to be like a recipe for like, what's better for humans? Like, what's better for us? What If we could have anything we want to live longer, to live happier, to live a more successful life, to live a more fulfilling life, what would that be? And I think COVID-19 did that for a lot of people, but for me, politically happened with the book. And that's when that, politically that is a good way to connect with people yeah. who are of the America first um, sort of mentality is that instead of putting all this patriotism into America, what is America? Why don't we talk about the human beings, right? Human beings first, I think could be something that resonates very well with other, uh, cons- with conservatives. Yeah. I think that's yeah. how Carlos was primary. Yeah. Yeah. You should keep going to that humanity first. Well, I mean, you did apologize for going to it too many times, but when we've been offered nothing but the stock market to assess the health of our nation, we need to offer some alternative. And humanity first, best one I can think of. So keep it up, yeah. man. That's what I think. Uh, Thank you. I really agree with, with, with so much of the stuff you said. What a great conversation. Um, It's 2 o'clock. We're out of time. I don't want to hold you too long, Um, but... Uh, on the topic of working smarter, we have an SEO optimization bot. So I've got a small ask before you go. If you could type exclamation point topic, um, credit, and then just the <laughs> the uh, Twitter handles of all the people in the Rhode Island or sorry, not New Hampshire uh, coalition. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. If you just type like New Hampshire Progressive Coalition on Twitter, and then all our Twitter handles, I'll be able to find them on Twitter. Anyone else who listens to this uh, will be able to find it on, on Twitter once it goes on youtube and twitch and spotify and stuff so uh, it'll be in the description for that so if you could do that that would be great and thank you so much for uh, for coming on so before, also before carlos takes off i want to invite everybody who's listening
and Ann Carlo to join us for uh, Shell's uh, Jack's Jackbox event tomorrow evening. Oh yeah, seven to nine Eastern. Back on, on top. Have you have you heard of uh, Jackbox? I have not, but enlighten me. Uh, party well, games. It's like it's like uh, it's like uh, Mad Libs, but different. Like uh, there's a game where you get two rapping robots that like rap battle, and you have to finish their couplets for them. It's word games and stuff. <laughs> I would love it's to. It's made so by the same sure people. Guys send me yeah. a, uh, a, like. Yeah, I'll send you an for the link. Yeah, sure. Okay, Tomorrow seven to nine yeah. on Twitch.tv slash Yangang Roundtable. I, I think I think Carlos, the thing that you, you summarized is the best. It's like who wants to be a mindless cog in a heartless machine? Yeah, I agree. And I'm surprised that religion hasn't taught us this like from the beginning. <laughs> but whatever. I mean, it took us Andrew Yang, I guess, to make us realize that I'm fine with that. Whatever it takes us to this road, I'm okay with. Um, so yeah, no, I appreciate everything you guys have done for me. I don't ever ask anything of any movement other than if you see something I post or check on me here and there, like it, retweet it. Um, it goes a long way. You have no idea who is watching it, who is reading it. Um, and it might be something that you're like, you know, what? I haven't retweeted or liked anything Carlos posted in a long time. I, I don't connect a hundred percent with it, but let me like it. Somebody else might need that message. Somebody else might be living in my city and might have just moved here and like need to hear it. Um, that neighbor that like literally came out of the nowhere. She's like, I just bought this house a couple of months back. We voted for you in the primary. We had heard about you, but I wanted to talk more before like general election. And we talked um, because she had heard about me through NH politics hashtag. Um, so you just never know. And you guys, I want to like empower you guys. The Yang Gang is a force. It's it's a force. Like I don't know how else to describe it. It's it's a powerful one. I I know how many times during the primary cycle I went back and forth between whether I was going to endorse Bernie Sanders or or Andrew Yang. Like because of the influence you guys had, because you guys had so much knowledge and so much positivity too, which is helpful as a candidate. And I was like, I have so much to juggle. I have so many friends within the Yang Gang movement. And I kept going back and forth. And so what I tell people in politics is just keep trying. Don't ever give up on anybody because you have no idea what they're thinking. And that might be the case to endorsing that candidate. So it might be the case with you guys, with me, or Andrew Yang, if he runs for president in the future, or whatever candidate you guys choose to in the future to support. Just keep going at it. You just don't know how close that person, even if they're telling you, no, I've made up my mind. You have no idea. Until that pen strikes that name on the ballot and fills the little bubble nothing is on stone and i i've made i've changed my mind at elections before like right in like the day of election i i like get a call from somebody and i'm like they really get to me because i'm a human like anybody else and i'm like you know what you're making a lot of sense i'm gonna support this person because like th this makes total sense and you have the right message for me thank you so will you still well, be a yang gang i think the number one um Besides Andrew Yang himself, of course, uniting all of us. But the most important thing I think you can say about the Yang Gang is Yang Gang shows up. Yes. That's it. We show up. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so, and um, I, I love some of, some of my favorite Yang Gang, like Irene in California and Minnie Yang. Like, they're just, I think, they're the coolest people on earth. Then uh, Sam, of course, who I think very highly of in my campaign. And, like, I'm so proud. Like, I, I feel like I, stroke, I struck gold by having him in my team. So 
Scott. Thank you again. I don't want to take more of your time, but I'll happily join you guys anytime. Please mark on your calendars October 15th at 7 p.m. We're going to have some exciting stuff that I want like you all to be part of. And Stay in our group chat, remind people, and we will show up. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much for everything. This is thank our you victory. for everything. We'll see you again. Sounds yeah. good. Bye-bye. Carlos. Bye. Have a good day, Carlos. That was awesome. All right. That was awesome.